Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I am so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing some of the readings for Advent 4, focusing particularly on the Annunciation, 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 11 and 16, and the Magnificat. With me today, I have three transformative and amazing guests. The Reverend Dr. Hilary Raining is the rector of St. Christopher's Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and the creator of the Hive Online Spirituality and Wellness Digital Community, www.thehiveapiary.com. And Reverend Anna E. Rossi, an Episcopal priest, liturgist, and interfaith advocate. She serves as the Succenter at Grace Cathedral, San Francisco, California. And last but not least, Ed Stewart, who recently earned his Master of Divinity at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific and MA in Theology at the Graduate Theological Union. He currently serves as a Director of Academic Administration at the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University. Welcome, everybody. So I wanted to start by talking about Advent. What's important, like what does Advent mean to you and what's important to keep in mind during Advent, especially this year, Hillary? I I think of two things when I draw near to Advent. The the first for me is remembering that this is a call of preparation to be to be preparing our hearts, our our lives, our communities to receive God, to receive Jesus. But what's even more beautiful to me in some ways is reminding ourselves that it's not just preparing for little baby Jesus. In fact, we don't need to prepare. He already came once, right? <laughs> but the fact that we're actually preparing for that second coming. Um, and I think as Episcopalians, we don't talk about that second coming very much. And when we don't, we lose the emphasis of joy um, of of having God join us and and bring all of creation into God's presence. So that's one thing. And then the second thing I particularly love with the Advent readings, and I'll say more about this later, is how how they they bring to us these characters that each are inspired by the Holy Spirit. In Luke's Gospel, when we hear any character give forth one of their beautiful hymns or songs or prophecies, the Holy Spirit first comes and descends upon them. And to my mind, that is the gift of Advent, being able to be open to that Holy Spirit in a way that is mysterious and holy and altogether exciting every year. Thank you. Anna? So when I think about Advent, I I think about preparing for the coming of God's presence bodily in a world that gets turned upside down by grace. So we are so accustomed in this year of 2020 to the world being turned upside down. But part of our um, our Christian discipline in Advent is to see God's action through the lens of hope. Um, so it's not merely that we're preparing, but it's that we are preparing with a certain amount of hope and imagination um, that is the gift of the prophets, and it's the gift of, of our own um presence, our own bodies joined um, together in that, in that hope. Thank you. Ed? 
Um, similar to what Anna just said, I think, well, especially this year, I think Advent is a time to be called to or to be recalled to the practice of hope, um, not necessarily optimism, but hope even in the face of uncertain or even ominous times. Um, and frankly, that's what it feels like this year. Um, and the challenge for me personally, I think this Advent will be to hold on to hope in the face of the various political, environmental, and uh, social justice crises that we are encumbered with at this moment. Mm, thank you. That sort of leads me to the next section, which is kind of like, what messages do our congregations need to hear this year? Well, I'll, I'll jump in a little bit because I've been inspired already what I've heard my fellow pod, podcasters here say. Uh, it really strikes me that this is a year to to ins- to talk about the joy and the hope of the season in a way that uh, maybe goes beyond the Hallmark Christmas cards for the use of those terms. Uh, I think of joy, one of the major themes typically associated with Advent, um, as being so much more important than happiness, right? Happiness can be fleeting. Happiness can be here one moment and gone the next. Um, and and this is a season similar to, to the idea of hope where we're looking for the joy, something that sustains well beyond just, just a flash in the pan of happiness. Uh, and and I think people need to hear that this year. And for us, our our joy comes from that gift and hope of of God, and especially of the call of Jesus. There's, there is a a joy that is so made manifest in this season that, as we say in our funeral services, we can make our song at the grave, Alleluia, 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 and and that needs to be proclaimed. I think this year more than ever couldn't agree more. And I also struggle with this question because there's underlying, what do our congregations need to hear? And I have to make some assumptions about who those congregations are. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think it is on the one hand, um, our job to um, sort of trouble people's comfort and Mm. also to comfort those who are deeply troubled Mm -hmm. right now. Um, and for me, one of those key messages is around imagination. You know, we hear um, both in, in, well, in multiple readings that we'll touch on later, things are spoken into being. Truth is spoken into being. And so what does it mean for us to imagine out loud mm. that coming of, of God's kingdom, the presence and reign of Christ, before it actually has come to be? And that's, um, so that feels really important to me. Um, The other feels to me like these stories emerged from an oppressed people in an occupied land. And um, as we wrestle with them, it feels important that that we um, pay homage to people who are living in those circumstances in our neighborhoods now Mm -hmm. um, in a way that that finds favor with their God-given dignity and human presence. I'm thinking about of my hypothetical congregation of people who are struggling this year for various reasons. And I think the message I would want to give would be first to acknowledge that these are hard and unhappy and difficult times. Um, and I think particularly as we approach Christmas, there's this compulsion to think that everything has to be happy and rosy and bright. And I think during this Advent season, 
we're called to embrace the fact that things are not happy and bright right now. And this Christmas is probably going to be a lot different from any of the Christmases we celebrated in the recent past. And yet, despite all that, the the Advent practice is still, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, one that calls us to practice hope, even in the face of situations that may appear to be hopeless. And I think that is, I mean, to jump ahead a little bit, I think that is also a practice of faithfulness that the readings speak to. So let's talk about the readings. Why don't we talk about the gospel? Um, what stands out for you as you hear the gospel or read the gospel or encounter it? What doesn't stick out, right? I mean, this is one of those, I, I love I love the idea of imagination that you're bringing in because this is one of those passages that invites the imagination to let us step into this story, either either wondering what it would be like to be Mary uh, or, or even just to sit next to her in, in our mind's eye and feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and the weight of, of her, yes. Um, I, I often wonder too about the ability to, to prophesy that she has that is different than perhaps some of the others who have gone before her. You know, the idea that she's able to ask God some questions here, ask the angel, you know, like, well, tell me more about this and, and not just get so scared that she is uh, immobile or in her, I guess, I guess what I'm struck this year in a year where there's so much trauma Mary isn't in fight or flight or freeze mode here, right? You know, she's able to be a model of what it looks like to be so centered in God that you can be unflappable, even in the face of a huge, overwhelming request of strength and uh, service. And I, I find that very inspiring this year. I feel like in a year where we have seen um, so much rancor, um, that what what is impressive to me about this text in this reading um, is there's the spirit of negotiation. Um, that it's not you know my way or the highway for God, for God's messenger, or for Mary. Um, there is that spirit of challenge, and then there is that experience, that statement of willful consent. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it, it probably doesn't meet the standard for informed consent that we would use in other contexts, but there is the sense of taking on everything you can know in that moment and stepping out with faith. Yeah, when I read the passage, I think that Mary is placid, but not passive, in the sense that she is receiving this news from the angel Gabriel, and it is remarkable, and she doesn't quite understand it. And so she does, to a certain extent bargain with the angel how can this be um but at the end of the passage we see that she acknowledges and receives this news with faith you know here i am let it be done with me according to your word um but i want to say again that is an example of a woman who is at peace not a woman who is passive um her faith is active her hope is active um, and she is embracing this news, even though she doesn't quite understand how it's going to be fulfilled. Mm. I, th- I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, if I, if I might respond to that. I think the, the joy of being able to see her 
out of that whole Mary, did you know, sort of mindset out of that, you know, Mary meek and mild, that's uh, no one likes right. to, to mansplain Mary, right? You know, like she, she has this gumption here that when she hears the words, you know, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. To me, that's huge. It's not the fact that she, she takes the angel at his, at the angel's word and, and doesn't let her fear kind of stop her on that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You know, she doesn't get so traumatized by her fear that she's unable to make a rational, mystical uh, decision. But then she also believes the second half of that statement, which is, you have found favor with God. And that's the piece that I think gives her this, this fierce um, belief that this is going to happen, even though there's no great way for her to understand it. It's this idea that, yeah, I have found favor with God. And I, I wonder if more of our fears in life would be allayed if, if we believed that we also have found favor with God. Like how much more would we be able to step into this world with a sense of bravery and joy if we also believed that? And Mary does. Or how about treating other people like they um, are favored by God, right? Amen. Yeah. There's this way in which Mary's fiat, let it be with me according to your will, becomes sort of the companion to everything that gets negated um, in the Magnificat that follows. You know, her response is yes to these things and no to these other things. Um, and and I think meeting God in the yeses and the nos feels like a really part, important part of our discernment in a season that is about um, God's coming and really and meeting God. It's like there's some yes and there's some no in that. So, you know, we had this message from uh, the angel. And I think in my mind, anyway, I would be anxious if I saw an angel and I'd be anxious if they said I was going to get pregnant for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> but then, uh, but then um, what messages uh, have we been given or do you think our society or maybe our church has been given that we might be apprehensive to, but that maybe we're called to? I, I want to maybe this might, this might get a little weird, but I had a dream last Advent um, about the birth of the of the next cycle of the church and how how it is every every 500 years the earth the the church kind of turns over a new time of reformation and renewal and we're about 504 years into <laughs> the next one and and it was in advent where i had this dream and seeing that new birth, that new life, it was very tied with this story, with this enunciation, that there is something about this year where we get to embrace this new cycle. And, and there's, there's joy in that and there's terror, right? You know, there, it can be extremely terrifying to think that we are now at the beginning of a cycle that's 500, a 500 year process, which means we're not going to see anything but the shaky beginnings. We're going to be seed planters. We're going to watch something die so something mm. new can be born. Um, and that's, to me, I need I need to hear "Be not afraid," and I need to hear the 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 pieces about you know, and your child will be born and will be holy and will be so, called Son of God. Because when we're watching our numbers decline, when we're not even able to gather together in person, when we're seeing such animosity, 
I need to know that there's going to be something 500 years from now that I can start helping to plant that seed to give birth to now. And it feels so Adventist. It feels so tied to this annunciation piece if we embrace it, right? And, and if, we, if we aren't railing against it. That imagery for me picks up with the, the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Mm. And, you know, in the way that, that I feel, at least I have been trained in this culture, and many of us have been trained to sort of um, put, go for what you want. Don't let anyone step in front of you. Don't let anyone overshadow you. Shine your light. And that's not really what this means. Um, it's really it's really stepping back and letting the power of the Spirit in its, in its darkness, actually, um, lead us into that new place, into that mm. new thing. And, and Mary is the icon of that, you know, this bridge between two worlds in a, in a really precarious time and place. Um, and, and I think what's so good about that, how, how you're drawing that out, is the, the Holy Spirit descending upon this overcoming so that she's not just looking for her generation, right? Like she will be beyond generations. Uh, and she's thinking about her ancestors, David, and going into the future, you know, generations will call you blessed. That's our moment right now. And we're, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to overcome us so that we can remember what's good and holy about the church and be looking so far ahead that we're not just thinking about this year and our stuff, but what 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 is five hundred years? What's five thousand years in the future for us? And and I think that's a um, a daunting task when you're so used to being myopic. But it's also why I think thinking about the second coming is so important in Advent. We don't normally think that far into the future, or how close that future could be, right? You know, and that's that's really what the story can also invite. Yeah, I mean, I. One thing I've always struggled with a little bit with Advent, um, I feel like the word has a different context outside of the church. Um, because in common parlance, the word Advent is often associated with something daunting and overwhelming and negative on the horizon. Like, I mean, I grew up in the South, so the example I always think of is the advent of the Civil War. Mm. I think the my own personal challenge has always been to think of, to hold that idea of, Advent being a, a time when something unexpected and perhaps even frightening is on the horizon. Um, and Hillary's 500-year dream or dream about, <laughs> about the notion of being at a moment of change resonates with me this year because I feel like, like America is at sort of a hinge point in its history right now. Um, and it's hard to know which way we're going to go, but between the election and the pandemic, and this reckoning with racial injustice, like all these seeds have been planted this year. And it does feel that we are in the advent of, I hate to say a civil war, but certainly a civil reckoning. And again, specific to this year, I think the advent message is to recognize that and, uh, and nevertheless, and I know I keep repeating myself, to maintain hope in the face of it all. Um, and the, to go back to the gospel for yes. just a second, I'm kind of surprised that none of us has commented on that. But part of the angel's message, in fact, Gabriel's last words to Mary are, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I think that is the central 
message of Advent for us this year. And who needs to hear that? Who needs to hear that nothing will be impossible with God? Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think that people need to hear it and and know that they can claim it. Right. You know, like that's almost terrifying in its own right. When you stop and think about what we think is possible, there's almost a comfortable level of predictability to it. But when he leaves her with that, nothing is impossible. That means it's going to get wild. And what we, I guess who needs to hear that are all of us who are trying to say then, well, what seeds are we letting God plant within us? And, and, and how are we going to let anything be possible? That's terrifying and amazing. I had a dream, I don't know, sometime in the last six months that was um, that was very much a dream about the church. And one of the kind of central images in it was um, emerging from the sewers, like taking the, the um, lid off the top of the sewer and kind of pushing out into the street. And in my own background, when I think of the sewers, I think of the way the sewers of Paris have been used in resistance movements. Um, and so there's, for me, this this way that um, when we are in those subterranean um, places that are loaded with, you know, the um, burdens of our past, the things that are too long digested, that there's this way of pushing um, towards a place that we don't we don't know what it's like to ascend to, but that that mm. that that port of entry is already there. And in my dream, people were were lifting one another out of that space. And so, when I think about how how Advent will function for us and how this text can function for us, it's it is that that social constructive work um, of helping people um, being the the sort of architecture or scaffolding by which people can climb um, and and their presence be kind of part of the common space. So what suggestions do you have for preaching this text? I, I actually, um, I'm leaning hard this year into, this might be silly, but how can this be since I am a virgin? Like none of us have ever done Christmas in a pandemic. Like we're all virgins this year when it comes to this. And none of us have ever tried to put back a society that has felt so broken. And none of us have ever tried to, again, look 500 years into the future and plant a seed now. Like it's, it's this year feels so different that I think we can all understand that. How can this be since I am a virgin question? And for me, that's going to be the the sermon linchpin, um, trying to say, all right, well, what, what do you need to know when something is your first time? <laughs> and that might be a, a, an interesting way to lead into a sermon, but it's, these are important questions. <laughs> Fear not, perhaps. <laughs> All things are possible. <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> I think when I looked toward preaching this text and you know, I think part of my role was to sort of push the boundaries of um, what we're comfortable with. And um, so the one of the first things that comes to mind is, um, you know, despite the centrality of Mary to this part of the Christmas story, this part of the coming of Christ, she's actually not particularly central to the Christian story. 
Um, very little text in the New Testament about her. Um, whole surah of the Quran is devoted and named Maryam. And I've always wanted to um, have an Advent for a sermon that was co-preached by, um, a, you know, a Muslim colleague. I've, I've just thought that that would really enrich um, our understandings of how Mary has been beyond the Christian story um, mm. and help us reinterpret her place. Um, and I'm also aware that there are so many ways that the the story and the character of Mary have been abused over time for pernicious reasons. Um, and I think we shouldn't shy away from taking some of those on right now. Um, I think particularly of um, how the the presence of the Virgin was used in Latin America um, as a sort of cover for generations of atrocities. And so what does it mean to really dig into those stories and to be present to the burdens of that interpretation and then to do the work of lightening them in a way that honors them, but that, that makes space for that um, fuller story and that redemption? You know, in terms of preaching, you know, my own take is the challenge when looking at the lectionary is trying to discern the thread that connects all the passages. Um, and for me, the thread that connects the passages is the notion of God's promises and faithfulness to those promises. And so in that sense, Mary is an example or even an exemplar. Um, her faith is reciprocal because she knows God will be faithful to God's promises and therefore she can, she is faithful to God. Um, and I think there's also a sense of God's promises not being dependent on us. I mean, to, to shift to a, a passage from Samuel, you know, God doesn't need us to build a house. Uh, God can build us a house. And that's what we should be thinking about. Um, how are we going to contribute to the building of the house that God wants us to have. You know, we know how Mary contributed. Um, so I think the challenge to us in these readings is to find that space, that space for us to be a participant in this project. Thank you, Ed. That was a great transition because that was exactly where I was going was to Second Samuel. So, you know, what do you think, or what implications do you think Second Samuel has um, for those of us who are marginally housed or not housed, or for those of us who work with folks who are marginally housed or not housed? I really feel like the, both of these texts together um, talk about an interstitial space. Um, God is not housed. David is not yet really planted. Um, the Jewish people are not yet really planted. This is a promise. It's not a, it's not the thing that has come to be yet. Um, and, you know, and, and also, frankly, we meet Mary, who is somewhere between her father's house and her husband's house. She, she has no place of her own. Um, and so I think the place that that really takes me is to the, is to the immigrant story. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, the, the really disastrous consequences of our immigration policy in the last four years. Um, and, um, also, the way that we have used um, public charge resources to mean that immigrants can't apply for public resources without being possibly denied 
um, better immigration status. So I, th- I think there are these real um, places in the text um, that take us there and also to take us to the numbers of people um, who don't have rent and mortgage security um, during the pandemic. Mm. And those may be some of our most immediate neighbors um, and that the, those consequences may be veiled from our eyes right now. I'd love to build on that a bit because I, th- I think that's so right on. And and to me, I'm very cognizant that we we are at the very beginning of Israel's lines of kings here too, right? You know, like this is still a new government invention for them. And and it was not God's God was not like, yes, this is the best plan you guys have ever come up with. Let's get more kings. <laughs> God was like, this is actually going to go very wrong for you. You don't need a king. I, I'm here with you. Like this is, and, and the injustice that starts to snowball from this, this story on, you know, this idea of, of watching what happens when you have a a kingdom based on wanting to look as powerful as other nations, right? That's, that's why they wanted a king. Um, in Mary, we see a reversal of all of it. Like we, we find once we get to her, where where God actually chooses to make His God's kingdom, you know, and it's it's not with the mighty; it's with the the some might say lowly and meek, you know, and and it's it's not with the all powerful who are ready to use their stature for gain. It's with those who are actually looking to to make God's house a home and everyone can be a part of it. So I think there's such an overarching uh, national politics in all this too, where God's like, okay, you asked for it. Let's see how this goes. And it doesn't, doesn't go well. And despite it's not going well, there is always this, this possibility of redemption yeah. and learning from this um, that, that's set before us. And um, it feels important to me that like in in the midst of those disasters, that we don't lose track of, you know what what Psalm eighty nine will say, to, um, God to David, I have anointed you, you know to the angel to Mary, I you have found favor in God's sight, and that assurance that that is pure grace. Mm-hmm. It's it's God will will use absolutely everything to make that grace happen, that the Holy Spirit wastes nothing in any of these stories. And even when we are making choices that are going to maybe mess stuff up or whenever we're like Mary and we're making great choices, it doesn't matter. God and the Holy Spirit are going to use it all. I think that's really, I think your point is well taken. When Isaiah asked about the marginally housed, I actually went in a different direction. I was thinking about the idea of the earth as our common home because this summer slash early fall season has been really difficult for me personally because, you know, I live in the Bay Area where we've been plagued by fires and smoke for what seems like the last two months. Um, and then my family, I'm, I'm originally from Louisiana. And so Louisiana, four hurricanes made landfall in Louisiana this summer. Um, and my family's okay, but it was a, you know, a close run thing um, a couple of times. And so I've been thinking a lot about the environmental home that we all inhabit. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily an Advent theme, but it's just something that's very much on my mind whenever we talk about the idea of the home that God has built for us. We inhabit it now, but how are we treating it? Um, mm. Because I think the other 
I mean, I jokingly have been telling people like the pandemic has sort of fallen down the list of my concerns because the idea of climate change and its apparent effects has become so salient in just the last several weeks um, that I worry about that as a long-term issue even more than I do about the pandemic right now because we we can come up with a vaccine for a virus, but we can't come up with a vaccine for an entire climate system. Absolutely. Thank you, Ed. I, I'm thinking, I was thinking kind of about when God says like, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people um, of Israel from Egypt. And I was thinking about sort of relating it to the folks who often are the folks who build the homes and the folks who sort of have built our economy and the black and brown folks who built many of the infrastructure of our country. um, And yet, who don't have housing, who are usually the most easily forgotten, who are often the most easily left out. Um, Like, it's like they built the nation, but then they are still not necessarily a part of it, or at least they're not treated like Mm. they're a part of it. And uh, then God says, I will give them rest from their enemies. And that's kind of what I was remembering. Right. And that is its own version of homelessness. I mean, I felt that this year as an African-American, certainly the question of where is, my larger national home um Mm. and what condition is that home in because the foundations feel a little shaky right now don't they Mm -hmm. Absolutely. and our church's homes like you know there's people who haven't had a church home because the church says you know we don't like who you love or we don't like how you look or we don't like how you pray or you don't have enough money for us to care about you or whatever it might be, all those messages. How can we be that home? How can we build that house that they can then live in? It seems to me, you know, just connecting, Nico, with what you're saying and Ed, that there's there's this way that, um, and, and we've seen this a lot in our national discourse, the sense of, of pitting issues against one another. It's either the virus or the economy. Um, it's either climate change or racism slash the plight of the poor in this country. And these are actually deeply interconnected and, mm. and, um, and embedded issues. And I think getting to hear directly from the people who are most impacted by that so that it's not just, you know, the academic analysis that says, you know, we've done this research, but the, the stories because at the end of the day, we are people of stories. Mm-hmm. So what are the stories of the people who are living this? And how, how do those stories become part of, of the story of the Episcopal Church and our own real conversion um, to the truth of God in Christ? Mm. I, I also think that this, is, this can be an invitation for us to start weaving all that together since whenever you get this metaphor of uh, the shepherd king, right? You have, you have the invitation to say, well, then, then what does true leadership look like, right? You know, God talks to his, to all of, of the people through the king often. And, and so for, for, for the issues of power that are in play at all of these topics, you know, who is, who's, who's leading these? And then how can, how can power be distributed in, in a way that's actually life-giving all around? And that's a much bigger question than, than we even ask when it comes time to elections, right? We, we tend to even mm-hmm. think about like one person and, and, and instead of saying like, wait a minute, what about the power everywhere and how does that get spread around? 
And I'd be really curious to know your sense of that that power discourse and how that um, rises up from either of the readings. But is it, wait, well, I was going to ask first, can we talk about the Magnificat now? <laughs> because, but there well, we are. The world just got turned upside down. It's for you. <laughs> because, because I think, I know, it's like I've been harping on this before. Before the podcast was even recorded to all of our listeners, I was harping on this. Because one of the things that has troubled me about the Magnificat is that you know, in the Episcopal Church, and certainly in seminary in the Episcopal Church, it is something that we repeated, you know, every day, every day at evening prayer. And I think it's an instance of a way in which repetition can actually make a message weaker, not stronger. Um, because the, the the video I re- referred you guys to was uh, Tracy Blackman. She reads the Magnificat as a woman who's experienced oppression and is now experiencing hope and joy. And to hear someone proclaim those words in that way, um, not as a rote recital, but actually as a cry of celebration and even vindication, um, really changed how I thought about this passage. And to respond to Alan's question, I think, this is Mary's statement or her vision of God's power and how God works in the world. Um, and these are these are not this is not an Anodyne statement. This is something very forceful and something said with conviction. You know, he has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. That is a statement about power. That is a statement about. God's power reversing the powers, the powers that be, the powers that work in the world for a different purpose. And I think, not think, I know, I know that that is what we've got to think about whenever we read this passage. I worry, again, I, I worry that we've lost the forcefulness of Mary's words and really the forcefulness of Mary herself. Like I said before, She's placid, she's at peace, but she's not passive at all. She's, she has made a declaration about the will of God. I, I couldn't agree more. I, um, I This is not going to be great for the podcast listeners, but I'm wearing a t-shirt today that in honor of our discussion that has like the Magnificat by a local artist. And it's Mary, she's got her like fist in the air. She's very... Uh, she's she's a force to be reckoned with, and it it's, it says around her, cast down the lowly, you know, lift up or cast down the mighty, lift up the lowly. You know, it's it's this, it's very much the pictorial representation of how you're describing her as stepping into this role that is uh, revolutionary, right? It is really asking nothing less than to look at the world as uh, a call to God's revolution, and in doing so, the song she steps into this legacy of her people, you know, into the spiritual lineage of Miriam, Hannah, Judith, Leah, all of these women who have, who have sung about God's reversal of power into the future. And then, and then takes it a step further and says, and now it's happening, right? It, God has done it. This is a thing, you know, this is, this is life now. And how, how many of us, to go to your point, Ed, like how many of us walk around forgetting that the world is upside down? 
like feeling the effects of the topsy turviness of it, but but not realizing that God will turn it upside down, right? Yeah, you know, and and what a thing to forget. <laughs> <laughs> what an what a thing to forget, you know, and and we do it all the time. Every time we worry more about our uh, uh, money, every time we worry more about our power, every time we worry more about feeding ourselves than somebody else, we forget what God has to say about this through Mary's song. I think for me, part of what you're you're getting at, Hillary, is the power of memory. Like we we're talking about Christ coming again in the future. But there's a way in which Christ comes again when we remember the thing that just happened that we lost track of, the thing, the, the action of God that made the present possible. Mm. Um, and that's, I think that for me, that's part of the power of the Magnificat, not to say um, this is all going to get perfected into the way it ought to be in the future, but to look in the recent past and find those examples and then to draw hope. And, um, and make those things happen again, bring them to bear for the world. Mm. That's beautiful. So what do you think, you know, we, we know that this is good news for folks who are oppressed, if you want to think about that way. I think what kind of implications does this passage have for us or for those of us with privilege? Or, you know, our church is sometimes thought of as being this very privileged church, at least it definitely used to be. What kind of implications does that have for us and how do we, how do we think about that? And how do we preach about that? I think we should be uh, convicted by this because there is, you know, we, in America, we are, we're, we have wealth that is shocking compared to so much of the rest of the world. And so when we hear <laughs> this, this call to turn the powerful on their heads from their throne and the rich sent away empty. We've got to ask ourselves why we can sit comfortably and just sing that as a, as a nice little canticle in church and not instantly get a little like, uh oh, <laughs> it's important for us to hear it as a, as also conviction, I think. Hmm. And then do something about it. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about, um, well, I used to work in a restaurant a long time ago, and it was something that had, I have a number of heartstrings that are attached to that restaurant. And I walk by it regularly, and I think to myself about all the people that work in that restaurant who can't make it right now. Mm. And that's one very decent little place in the financial district in San Francisco. And so when we're talking about, you know, who builds it, um, here am I, a servant of the Lord. Like, what about the precarity of being in a service profession right now? And and what does that mean for those of us who can, you know, afford to um, get takeout and afford to do those things? Like, how do how are we um, with people who are part of a servant class? And how do we vote? in ways that assure that there's some economic stability and some social stability for the vast majority of Americans who earn their living that way. Hmm. You know, it's funny because you asked about privilege, Isaiah, but I think you know, my thoughts this year, and they're triggered by reading the Magnificat, is that you know, we as a society, like America, as a whole, as a nation, we've been brought low. <laughs> we have been brought low by the pandemic. We've been we've been scattered. <laughs> the, we've been scattered in our conceit about the 
fact that we felt our economic system was just, that our healthcare system was effective. Like so many of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, you know, American exceptionalism have really taken it on the chin this year. Um, Mm. And I think the question I have isn't so much about how do we reconcile these words with our privilege. It's more about how do we reconcile these words with the fact that we've been taken down a peg this year. Um, because that, I think, is the way I'm feeling as we, you know, we're recording this two weeks before Election Day. Um, and the political project of America, the flaws in that project have been brought to bear in a way that they just simply haven't been at any point in my lifetime. Um, and that is not really so much a question of Republican or, or Democrat, but a question of what are the foundations on which this society rests? Like, and, you know, and what is our role as Christians to speak to those foundations? Like, what is the message that we have for essential workers? Like, how do we characterize who is essential? Um, because, you know, I'm talking about, like, lifting up the lowly. A year ago, essential workers were people like, you know, CEOs and doctors who make six figures or more. And this year, essential workers are bus drivers and lab techs and the people who deliver our packages. And Mm -hmm. we have mistreated those people for so long. And now we're recognizing their contributions. And yet, even at the same time, we haven't cared for them in terms of providing them with living wage or the ability to call in sick or the health care that they need. Right. Um, and that's just like one mm. example of many things I could cite in, you know, in the year of our Lord 2020. And I'd love to just respond to that because I think that's so, so well put. Sure. And then it begs the question, so how do we make this a song of praise then? Right. You know, with, with all that, because this is Mary's song of praise. Like how, how does that feeling of being brought down a peg to be, to maybe have America humbled a bit, how is that something we can praise? And that's a big question. I I think that we might need to wrestle with for a little bit because it doesn't feel praiseworthy all the time. And yet there's something here that, that might make us all hopefully look more like the change that God is actually bringing about? Well, I I think that's the, I mean, my answer is to look to these words in the Magnificat as a sign of God's justice at work. Um, And to have faith in, and again, Mary's faith in God's promise, I think is, the model we have to follow like the challenge is to see these these difficult times as the harbinger of or dare i say the advent of (laughs) of (laughs) god's vision for the world or god's justice finally coming to pass Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what i've got (laughs) for me the companion of that is is really the experience of judgment um, which is which, which we talk about in um, sometimes in the worst possible ways, but 
when our hearts are convicted that we've been brought low, then it's very clear what the next work is. We don't get to get distracted with a whole bunch of other things. It's like, no, this is our next task. Mm. Um, and that next task is about justice. Mm. Um, so it's, it's the place where we know God's will and we know what the next just thing is. I was thinking about like the, and I think we already, or actually I don't even think it's in this year, the thing about like out of the stump of Jesse, the shoot shall come out, right? And I think about that, uh, that passage always makes me think of like times when I've been brought low are always sometimes the times that are the most transformative or the times that I can learn the most or the times that I can um, grow the most. And maybe that is what we could praise then is is what the growing or the changing or the transformation that can take place or may take place. Yeah, that that feels really true. So uh, what suggestions for preaching this text do you have? Or Samuel, we kind of skipped over that question in Samuel. (laughs) We've been um, in the Diocese of California talking um, a lot about the indigenous contribution to the church. And this this refrain that I hear often, um, our brother Jesus who broke no promises. Hmm. And um, that sense of Jesus' faithfulness and the the valor of Jesus' word um, is set alongside ours. Um, And so for me, there's this way in which when we have this whole theme of promise that pervades the readings, like what, how are we with our promises? Um, Not only in, in the, you know, interpersonal, but in the social contracts that we've made, um, are we doing the work that we have said we would do as a church? Um, both vis-a-vis um, indigenous communities, vis-a-vis all the communities of color um, and our neighbors. And so that that for me feels like an, an entry point um, to multiple texts. As indigenous person um, in Samuel, um, there's this part where they said, I will plant them so that they may live in their own place. And I think always thinking about my homeland and my own place and always hoping that we have that at some point. I think that's so true. For me, this is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to what we what we praise and what we say is right and what we will proclaim is is justice and then what we're willing to do about it in both of those mm. passages. You know, like how how uh, how is it for God to hear us t- proclaiming the Magnificat in in the temple that we've built for God uh, and then not going out and living it either. Um, you know, so I think this is really for me, the, the preaching juxtaposition. That's a charge. It'll, it'll have some teeth in it. (laughs) (laughs) We need that. (laughs) Well, the Magnificat has some teeth in it. So I, it it would be, it'd be, uh, just doing it justice. Uh, anything that doesn't have teeth in it probably is uh, not entirely of God. No, not not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that for me, what's reinforced by all these passages is this notion of trusting in God's promise and God's word and God's work, even when we can't comprehend how those things can come to pass because of the the times we're living in. But I, mean, mm-hmm. that, I feel like that's the message that I need to hear this Advent in particular. Like the world feels like it's been turned upside down or, you know, or that it's crumbling around us. And yet there's this notion of, you know, God's eternal promise, whether it's the passage from Samuel or the Psalm that we haven't talked about or 
um, the promise of denunciation. Um, and I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to hold on to this, this season. The idea of a promise that transcends the moment that we're in. Well, thank you so much for all of you for being willing to come on the show and, um, share your thoughts and everything. And I appreciate it so much. It was an honor. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Really great to be with y'all. And um, what excellent conversation partners. I was just thrilled. <laughs> yeah, Delighted. to be with y'all. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Anna, Hillary, and Ed. And thanks to our production team, especially Chris and Allie. If you heard good news today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, Let your light shine. invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.